We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm joined by the chicks on the right, Amy, Joe, and Miriam. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, hello. So glad to be here. So where can people find your podcast? You're doing a podcast every day, right? Yep, every day. We we are on early, early in the morning, but people can go to our website. I think that's the best place to find everything Chicks. It's chicksontheright.com. And we just, um, I, I don't want to say rebranded, but we just kind of spruced up our website a little bit. So people should definitely check that out. Great. And there's a, a link there. Um, actually, if you just click podcast at the top of the link, it shows all the different podcasting platforms that the podcast is available on. And then we video stream live every morning onto YouTube, onto all three of our Facebook channels, onto Twitter, um, and onto Rumble all at the same time at 715 Eastern every morning. Well, there you go. 7.15. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. 6.15 <laughs> my time. So it is pretty early. But, you know, That's how but we have, you guys are Midwesterners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, why don't you tell us, first of all, I'm curious, how long have you been doing this? Because my memory is that you, you sort of came out of the Tea Party years. Is that correct? And tell that, us a little bit about the trajectory of chicks over the years. Well, that is correct. The tea, that makes us sound really old, but yeah, it really we did. Does. We did. I know we did come out of the tea party years. Miriam, you're really good at telling telling this story about kind of how we came to how be. How it began. How it yeah, all began. It, <laughs> I'll give you the shortened version because we actually do have an entire podcast episode that's dedicated to the wonderful, serendipitous, bizarre, crazy way that we met. Mm. Um, but the short version is that we were actually working together in corporate America in the summer of 2008. And we became instant best friends um, once, once she started working at the same company that I was at and we started going out to lunch every day and finding ourselves talking about nothing but politics because of course that was the rise of Obama and we were not political animals necessarily before that but his his this the mania that surrounded him as a personality was so weird that we talked about it all the time and so if that was in the summer and then by the time he was elected that fall that december amy joe uh over one of our many lunch hours together she suggested that we start a website um where we could talk about politics in the way that we found ourselves doing that at lunch every day which is a much more sort of casual conversational style and we weren't seeing that on the internet at that time. We were just seeing a lot of the typical news sites, but not a lot of conversational um, ways of talking about politics in a more relatable way. And so we thought that might appeal to people and it did. Yeah. Amy, did you have anything to add to that? Well, I mean, I just, I think it, she's right about it. We, at that point, I think nowadays we do see a lot more of that. Obviously I'm not saying that we were trailblazers, but I'm not, not saying it either. <laughs> I think at the time, at the time we saw a need and we filled that need. And I think, you know, it's, it was really fun and very, um, it was, it was something very different at that time. We were more, you know, miniskirt rather than three piece suit at that time. We were just sort of fun and 
and very conversational. And we were two chicks doing it rather than, you know, dudes, a bunch of just old stodgy white dudes talking about politics. And I think that struck a chord with, with people. And it wasn't just, we thought, well, maybe our parents will read it. And they did, but we were, really, we, were, well, <laughs> <laughs> we were, okay. My parents were reading it, but I mean, like it was, it was one of those things that we were actually a little surprised by the fact that, you know, there were people that were like, God, this is great. Cause you know, they talk like me and they are like me. And it was, you know, our tagline at the time, and it still is giving conservatism a makeover because there, we still find that there are people out there, even today, after almost 14 years of doing this, there are still people who are like, God, you, I, I found my people. You guys talk like me. You are like me. I feel like I found you know, my people, because you have the same voice as I do. And sometimes I think there are a lot of conservatives out there who um, feel like they are alone and we give them that sense of community. And that's one thing that Miriam and I have always been very good at. And we've always been very proud of is our ability to create community. And, um, and that's, I think that's when we're old and gray, that's going to be the one thing that I look when we're old and older and grayer, <laughs> that's going to be the, the one thing that I am most proud of with, um, this baby that we've birthed is, is the fact that we've, is the fact that we've created this really, um, wonderful sense of community that I think was lacking back in 2008. I want to ask more about giving conservatism a makeover, because some folks might hear that and think what you mean is sort of along the lines of that disastrous Republican autopsy in 2012, <laughs> which you probably remember. It was like, well, right. you know, in order to uh, appeal across the spectrum, Republicans now want need to want open borders and the, the left's full like cultural slate of everything else. So when you say con giving conservatism a makeover, what do you mean by that? Well, I think the, the way that I'd answer that is that we've always been of the mindset that there is a stereotype associated with conservatism and it's this old stodgy white guy. Right. So I think that that has kind of clung on to the conservative label for far too long. And so when we started, we we felt like we were proof that that's not the case. And now, you know, for almost 14 years later, it's even more not the case because now we see, you know, we see a Blexit. We see so many diverse people across conservatism. And I don't think that ever gets enough attention. And so one right. of the things that that's kind of why we created the tagline is that we wanted to say, you know what, conservatism is not just old white guys. There's a lot more to it. There's a lot more of us that are part of it. There's a lot more different looking people than just old white guys. And so that was always what we meant by the conservative makeover. And now it's almost like the, the tagline itself has become obsolete because we're proof. I mean, there all you have to do is look around the conservative ranks and you're you're going to see people of every walk of life, every stripe, every color, every creed. We're all represented. And it's a it's a nice big tent. But that doesn't mean we have to give up our conservative principles. That's never what we've meant. Yeah. And I think there's a broad brushstroke um, that liberals try to paint us. In. They just I'm sorry, a not very broad brushstroke that liberals <laughs> try to paint us in. And, you know, like I live in Texas and I know that I gosh, there are a ton of Hispanics out here that are conservative and you just don't hear about it very much. It's one of the things that we saw early on is that 
the media has such a stronghold. Um, the Democrats have a stronghold with the media and they will put the narrative out there and they're so on the offense. And then the GOP conservatives are so much on the defense that we're constantly having to say, well, wait a second. No, no, no. But we're this, but we're this, you know, you can't tell us who we are. And there are a lot of gay people. There are, you know, black people, there are women, there are, you know, Hispanics, there are transgenders even that are conservative. And you just don't hear about those people very often because it's, this is something that they don't want you to hear about because it's a it's a threat to them it's a threat to their narrative but they're out there we're out there we're the women out there you know who are conservative and that is the makeover so the obama era question is really interesting to me because i was thinking about this in the context of a debate that was happening on twitter recently about you know there was a question posed by someone i think it was someone in the the legacy media who said when did conservatives decide they want, you know, these candidates who fight back or punch back or something like that? And somebody answered uh, probably around the time that Mitt Romney, like choir boy Mitt Romney, was treated like, <laughs> oh my a, God, right. like, a, like a demon. Um, and I disagree with that a little because I think it minimizes the effect that what was happening in the culture over the Obama era, especially even before that, uh, the way Hollywood talked about Christian conservatives, the way Obama himself talked about Christian conservatives clinging to their guns, their gods, and their religion. Um, I really think there was something happening in that the early days of the Obama era that pushed a lot of people into this direction where they realized the culture is, is really slipping, the country is really slipping. And so I, I'm really interested to hear why you guys feel you were both very animated by that period in time. Um, am I onto something? Do you have any sort of... Do you have any insight on uh, that question of, you know, is it is it Romney? Was it before Romney? What is it? What was going on in those in those days that animated you guys and your listeners too? It was it was definitely. It was, don't you think it was pre Romney, Mary? Don't you think? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, if, yeah. if you're asking from like an engagement standpoint, mm -hmm. I, I know that, you know, the whole Joe the plumber interaction with right. Obama mm -hmm. really set some people off. I mean, mm -hmm. I know totally. that that's but also, I mean, for me personally, the reason that Obama was sort of the spark that lit the fuse for me was because I could not believe that so many people were falling for the snow job. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like he, to me, Pop it was culture. so clear that he was just a, yeah. Like he was such a, he, he was such an empty suit from the very beginning. And I could not believe how many people were snowed. That's, that's really what did it for me. Right. And he was a pop, it was like a pop culture president, you know, cause he didn't have a lot of experience and we both saw that. And it was, it was that mass appeal to younger people, you know, it was, and you know, we see a lot of that now with Biden, Biden's doing the same thing, you know, with like the whole bribing young people with their student loan forgiveness. It's like, we're seeing that all over again. It's like, let's see how many young people, starry eyed young people we can bribe into loving me, love me, love me, love me. You know, it's like, and it, Obama did the same thing and they fell for it. You know I mean? They loved it. We saw it happen. And then here we were, we were the older people you know, the kind of a little bit older people, but we saw the younger generation falling for that rock star president who didn't really have, like, you know, like Mary said, he was sort of an empty shell. He didn't really have a lot of experience or anything. We're like, well, how is this even happening? And so it was like that pop culture that started the pop culture, the, the internetified pre president, 
you know? And so it was, it, it was a little terrifying, you know, because we were used to growing up with the Reagan, the Reagan kind of president. And that who had a, the, the president who was like, you know, those presidents who had a little bit more substance, a little bit more background, a little bit more experience. And we were just like, oh my God, like what is going on with our country right now? You know, what's, I, I want to actually stick on this because that's so, I think it's really, it was a preview of what we ended up seeing going to hyperdrive over when Donald Trump was nominated and everything, because there was this idea in those, when Obama was running and the, all of Hollywood got behind him, everyone started, it was this like, if you don't support Barack Obama, you're being called racist. I mean, that was a real thing. And the same thing with the Tea Party, the entire Tea Party was, was painted as racist. And Mm -hmm. to me, that's so much more powerful than what (laughs) happened to Romney but still the point is it was this kind of binary thinking that the media and that Hollywood was pushing on people that you either support Barack Obama or you are against hope and change Um, and Mm. it it just was like this utter bulldozing of half the country Uh, and I wonder if if you found that your the community you 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 say you've built is Mm. that's what is kind of animating for people I think so yeah for sure Well, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Miriam. Go ahead. Well, I, and I think Romney, you know, we listen, we all tried. We tried to get behind him and we did the whole gung ho and we cheered and we were, you know, because the alternative to us was unthinkable. But but in retrospect, obviously, he was not a good candidate because he was so sort of stiff and so um, he he sort of personified like the rich guy that that everybody is so um, th- that we find such, such disdain for. So it was very hard for him to relate to people, I think because people saw him as this impossibly elitist and out of touch person who could never understand what regular people were experiencing day to day. And then on top of that, the fact that he would sort of bow down and not fight back and not push back and not defend, not just himself, but by extension, all of us was really off-putting. I mean, that really, that really hurt, I think, the Republican Party a lot. And that's what made people even more energized for someone who was such a fighter like Donald Trump. Right. He was so, oh my God, that guy was so milquetoast. I could, <laughs> I could not deal with him. Yeah. I mean, people want to, people on our side, I think we were ready for a scrapper. And I think a lot of that stems from kind of like what you're saying with the racism talk. A lot of us were sick and tired of being called racist. I mean, from the time that Miriam and I started, Chicks on the right, it stung the first probably what one or two years. It stung to be called a racist. I mean, it really hurt. It hurt. And then we were like, okay, after two years, it didn't sting anymore. It was just a word. And that says something, right? It says something when somebody calls you a racist and it doesn't even hurt anymore. I think that a lot of the country feels that way. A lot of people who are conservative feel that way. When that word no longer means anything, that should speak volumes about our country because liberals have used it so much. It's like the boy who cried wolf, right? I mean, they have shut, they have tried so much to shut down conversation in this country by using that word, which used to mean something. I mean, it's because listen, listen, racism does exist, but the fact that they have overused it to the point um, of just, it's, it's gross. Now it's just if you don't agree with them, you're racist, period. So it has lost all of its meaning. And that's what leftists are famous for doing is just utterly diluting the the words that used to be considered horrific. I mean, now, you know, socialism, people use that as though 
oh, that that's just another way of governing. That's going to that's fine. That's that's a good thing. It used to be people wouldn't even. Do you remember when socialism and communism were things of such the past? Yeah. yeah. And now it's like we're talking about them. Well, we're not, but people are talking about them as serious proposals for America. Right. And that's just another example of how words have become diluted mm-hmm. and no longer have the same punch that they used to. And that's not good. Right. And the GOP and, and, you know, conservatives are now, it's like they've gone from now that racism has lost, is, lost its punch and its sting. They've moved on to white supremacists. Yes, so now yes. we're all white supremacists. And then they've moved on from, you know, like other words, to fascists. Now we're fascists. It's like, oh my, I mean, this is the thing. This is what they've done. And it's, it's just, it's remarkable what we've seen over the past almost 14 years, the way that I used to think that some of these things were the absolute worst things to be called. I mean, honestly, and now it's like, oh, you're going to call me a fascist. You don't even know what that means. I mean, it's like, whatever. <laughs> and you know, it truly you know? is these are the worst things to be called in a country yes. that has, you know, fought so hard to make so much progress on for right. instance, race relations. And mm. I, I want to ask, again um about the for me it's it's Trayvon Martin I remember Mm. that incident as being one of the that's when I started I was actually in college at the time and that's when I started to feel really anxious about where the country was going because it did not feel like the country that you know I had known before that and then you have Michael Brown and Ferguson and fast forward and all of these different incidents even the beer summit which I think happened before yeah Trayvon. yeah, yeah um, we remember that mm-hmm. what what kind of happened between the election of Obama and the election of Donald Trump what, what do you think because you you were you know on you were covering it all you know on a day-to-day basis and and engaged with your audience what happened in America? Mary. That's a loaded question. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, just, I mean, hyper, hyper focus on race. It's like, I've never seen in my lifetime, a hyper, just an extreme hyper focus on, on race. I mean, we, I grew up, in, we grew up in the eighties, you know, and I, and I was taught by my parents who grew up in the sixties, right. That it's it, race doesn't, matter like your skin color doesn't matter that's how I was raised and so I always thought to myself well I'm going to raise my kids to do the same and you know you can't you can't raise them that way because what happens is they go out into the world and then they're taught differently they're taught that well race matters and that's such a um antithetical it goes against everything that you taught them right Mm -hmm. and I hate that as a parent you're just like it just it breaks my heart what we what I've seen in the past 13, 14 years. I mean, it really does as a as a parent, as a mom, as a you know, person who works in this, like I guess you call it industry, what we do, you know, yeah, we've had to talk about it ad nauseum. We've had to talk about it. And it and that also breaks my heart, you know, everything that's gone on. I hate that we're so hyper focused on it in this country. But I think, Emily, I think you're you're I think you are onto something with the whole beer summit thing, because if you think about Obama's election, he was elected because a huge swath of white people voted for him, thinking that he would be sort of this great uniter and that it would really take race relations to a whole new, beautiful level. Mm -hmm. And his actions ahead of that beer summit 
talking about the cop acting stupidly, he that was really the beginning of when things turned south because right. and, and it is all on him. And so I think that that's a really good milestone that you mentioned, because from that moment on, I can't think of anything. I, I can't think of a more seminal moment than that one where Amen. it actually yeah. began. And it was, mm-hmm. and that was all on him. So, you know, the, the white people got him elected, right? Right, right. And his response was to immediately denigrate a white cop. Mm-hmm. That was just the worst thing ever. It's, yeah. interesting, it's interesting because there was the there's you can still look at uh, the way that Donald Trump, you know, there are a bunch of things in every election that people say put them over the edge uh, that put a particular candidate over the edge or doomed them. But there is this this uh, chunk of Obama Trump voters and it's a lot of white working class folks. Um, and that's mm. to me, that's really, really the key um, that this there was something happening in the culture. And I wanted to ask you guys about how uh, when when Trump sort of descended the uh, proverbial or not the proverbial the the actual golden escalator um (laughs) what was that how were you where were you early on all of this stuff and how did you come to um how did you come to like a lot of people evolve or not uh over the the kind of trump era like what, what are are you asking like how we felt about it um individually like about trump because i I was, We'd, I thought it was different because right, I, 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 I personally thought it was really cool. Cause I'm, I'm pretty anti-establishment and I'm sick. Of, I was sick of the establishment by that point. Cause I was so like, you know, Romney's squishy and I'm sick of all these freaking people and they don't do anything <laughs> and screw them all. And then and Jeb Bush um, was going to be the nominee. Oh my he was God. The I, just, one. Right. I just couldn't, I couldn't deal. So I was like, Oh, Trump, that sounds good. He's a businessman. <laughs> we need it. We need somebody who actually has a real freaking job to do this i think that'd be great and so i was on that side of the i was like that's cool um well but Mary, to be fair you were on carly's team well before liked, that she also was a businesswoman and so i right. was like any anybody who's not in the establishment bring them on and that's how i felt about that but um yeah but miriam was not um, i was not was, i it took me it took a her. long time right. to get on the trump train and now obviously i voted for him um, right. and i had no problem doing that because you know at that point it, if i'm looking between hillary and trump it's a no-brainer so i voted for him happily but i also was one of those people who just you know a day before the election on election day i was like i cannot believe that these are our choices i i was just i was totally sickened by it but i swear where do you like a month in two months in it was I was utterly transformed and happy to be wrong I was so happy to be wrong and happy to admit how wrong I was because he turned out to be exactly what the country needed when we needed it so I want to that is so interesting and I want to ask more about that because it seems to me it also speaks to uh, and I've, I've, I've just seen this with a lot of people um, and people that I know it, it speaks to maybe it was that Trump era that kind of peeled back the curtain on how bad things have 
gotten by the way mm. the media treated Donald Trump, by the way the political establishment treated Donald Trump. The Russia collusion uh, hoax, mm -hmm. for example, is is something that you know really showed that how deep the corruption in the country really was, how bitterly political elites. I mean, I always think of Peter Strzok talking about oh, those, those messages, the smell Ugh. of Walmart. He's talking that about guy. the smell of Walmart and these these text messages to Lisa Page, which it, it's it it shows that his contempt for Donald Trump is a contempt for Trump voters, um, right, really, right. at the end of the day. And I think as the Trump presidency progressed, um, maybe, and I don't want to put words in your mouth at all, but it, it does seem to me that there was something that became very clear that, uh, you know, the sort of Flight 93 election thesis that Michael Anton had put forward in Claremont around that time, uh, which was probably only read in D.C. and, you know, maybe <laughs> California and, and New York, whatever, but uh, this idea that something dramatic had to change and nobody cared if it was the host of Celebrity Apprentice who was the vessel for it. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. think that's right. I think that's mm -hmm. exactly right. And, you know, granted, I it took me a long time. It's like so props to all the people who were on that train from the get go, because I was one of those people who after every single Republican primary debate uh, in that season, and I would go to Drudge Report back when Drudge Report was actually good. Mm. And and I would see the the poll like of who won the debate. And I felt like Trump would, ha would have had a terrible performance on most of those debate nights. And there he was like leading the polls every single time and I was like what is going on like what is America doing and yeah. then he took office and and the changes that he made on like literally within his first week I was like wow he's gonna do the things that he said he's gonna do this is amazing yeah. and you know for by by all accounts in terms of his economic performance you can't beat it you know and it, it wasn't until obviously COVID that that the economy was destroyed but that can hardly be blamed on Donald Trump. So, yeah, yeah I, I was very happy to be wrong. So as we look forward, I mean, we're in a midterm cycle right now. Uh, some interesting candidates and some interesting candidates that are kind of testing what what the future of the Republican Party looks like, what, you know, maybe Mitch McConnell wants it to look like, what Donald Trump maybe wants it to look like, and then <laughs> what Peter Thiel maybe wants it to look like. There's all kinds of stuff going on, uh, which is probably healthy. But uh, what are you guys thinking going forward? What is your your audience? You know, where, where do they stand? Is, is somebody like Dr. Oz? Uh, you know, Ugh. what do you think? Okay, so <laughs> tell me more about that. Tell me more about your, your uh, uh, because I'm, I'm sort of in the same camp. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, well, he's he's better than a, a whack job, you know, communist Bernie Sanders kind of dude, though. I mean, it's like I'd rather have Oz than some weirdo. You know, this is the thing. It's like with a lesser of, you know what I mean? It's like I, 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 these are the candidates that we're getting or the the Oz's over what? Like, what's the alternative? Some whacked out dude that can't that can't speak on a podium. This is I don't know, you guys. I mean, this, this is what we've got. But I, mean, well, I, I think. Go ahead. No, you go, you go ahead. I mean, I, I know what you, what you want for 2024. I know who you want. <laughs> well, I was just going to answer the question about our audience. Uh, it is very split, actually. There are, yeah. because almost every show that we do, you know, I'm personally, as much as I just got done glowing about how I transformed into a Trump supporter during his presidency, I don't want him to run. Um, I, I would prefer it if he would just bow out gracefully and become a kingmaker as he is very good at doing. And I would love to see, I mean, DeSantis is my number one 
pick for a 2024 candidate, but I have no idea if he's going to run. So I would, I just would love to see someone that has that same spirit and fight in them that Trump and DeSantis both do. Um, if it's not going to be DeSantis or Trump, then, you know, whoever happens to bubble up to the surface, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But, but yeah, if, our audience gets very angry with me. Many of them get very angry with me when I don't show just complete loyalty and allegiance to Donald Trump. But I, at this point, I just feel like he served a purpose. He's a bit damaged at this point, mostly by his own doing. And I don't think a lot of that damage is something he can recover from with a huge block of voters that he needs. And that would be independent women voters. I just don't see him regaining those or gaining them at all. There's plus, a- you're ex- plus you're exhausted. I mean, let's face it. You're yeah. exhausted. You're exhausted by the drama. I mean, I'm, I'm being honest. I mean, I totally, I don't, I'd be okay with it, but like, I mean, you're mock is an eternally optimistic person. And there are a lot of people like that out there. I mean, I think, you know, there are a lot of people like her who are just, especially people who are conservative because conservatives by the very nature are very polite, you know, genteel, wonderful people, a lot of them, which is why a lot of them aren't fighters. Some of them are. And some of them like the fact that Donald Trump is a fighter and that Ron DeSantis is a fighter. But for the most part, these are really good God-fearing people. A lot of them are. And they just, some of them are just tired. You know, they're tired of the, you know, the drama and the fight. They just want somebody who is positive that can, you know, represent them that will take us into the future that doesn't, maybe that doesn't have the baggage. I'm just speaking for those, <laughs> those people because I know that they exist, right? And so, and I think, I think you're one of those people. You're just kind of sick of the drama, right? I'm so sick of the drama. And especially right. because so much of it is self-inflicted and unnecessary. And that to me is the major difference between Trump and DeSantis is that level, like DeSantis seems to know when to fight and 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 then he doesn't take it further than the fight it doesn't get nasty or personal or just icky and so much of the time trump takes it to that level and i think that's a turnoff for a lot of people myself included i i don't yeah so so i do i i think uh there's a a significant chunk of the electorate who feels that way. I also want to add another question to that because there's this idea of, is it possible to have Trumpism without Trump? Um, I think the, the, I I mean, it's an open question um, because, you know, you can go in a million different directions about, well, what is Trumpism? Isn't it central to this idea that Donald Trump is going to go out there and just trash CNN like nobody, (laughs) like nobody else ever really could and do it in the most hilarious possible way that actually brings attention to it, et cetera, et cetera. So I wonder if the the drama is almost uh, inevitable or impossible to avoid at this point because the left has ratcheted it up to a point where you kind of need um, someone who's just going to be the wrecking ball. What do you guys think about that? I think, well, I think you definitely can have Trumpism without Trump. And I, there's, you're absolutely right. They have ratcheted it up because now they're, they're calling it a MAGA element. Now we're like a, like I said the other day, we're like a, some sort of a periodic table, right? I mean, it's like this weird, we are an element now. And it's not by our, do, it's not by our doing. They've done this. You know, they've, they've created this huge narrative and they've created this entity where we are this thing, you know, so yeah, I mean, I, there is Trumpism, and I think whether or not he, if he decides not to run, there's still going to be Trumpism based on the fact that, you know, they're going to continue to paint us all as these these mega people, you know, like these mega bots or something. 
It's, well, and it's I think too, unfair. a lot of people, a lot of people argue that, well, the media will go, the Democrats and the left and the media will just do the exact same thing, no matter who the candidate is, they're going to attack them in the exact same way that they attack Trump. And so that's the, that's what I always hear when I, you know, indicate support for somebody like DeSantis. Oh, well, they'll just tear him down too. Yes, that's absolutely true. But the difference will be in how they respond. DeSantis, I think, would be more apt to fight back, but but not do the whole, like not allow his ego to be the reason. And I think that's the difference between the two is that DeSantis fights back on the issues and he doesn't have to get as personal. Trump always had such ego, still has so much ego. So everything is about him personally and that's how he fights. And I think that's what's been a turnoff to people like me. Yeah, it's a good point. Mm-hmm. So just wrapping up here, last question is, uh, this is kind of another loaded question, but in a very general sort of 30,000 foot sense, if you were uh, advising the RNC as they're, you know, devising their midterm strategy, uh, from your vantage point, uh, outside of the Beltway, uh, communicating with with your audience and doing this on a a daily basis and having been doing it for a while, um, what advice would you give national Republicans looking to you tap into what voters want this cycle. Oh my God, talk about the actual issues. Talk about dinner table issues. Talk about crime. Talk about the fact that fentanyl is the number one killer of people 18 to 44. I mean, talk about the things, talk about like the border is a massive issue. And the only people talking about it right now are, are you know, Fox and the quote alternative news media, which is like us, right? I mean, like, and, and you guys, I mean, it's like, this is like, nobody is, it, I feel like we're always on the defense. We're never on the offense. They have got to start talking about this stuff to people every single day and pummeling them with this sort of thing, because this is what people are concerned about. They're not concerned about, you know, I guess, I mean, I'm sure some people are concerned about like, you know, drag queen shows in their local towns, but really they're concerned about the economy. They're concerned about, you know, safety of their families. This is the kind of stuff that they're concerned about. And we have got to get those messages out every single day. I think that is exactly right. And I would just add to that, that not only do they need to get those messages out about the things that Democrats have done wrong, but they have to present what they're going to do to fix it. Because Mm -hmm. the problem so much of the time is that Republicans, we were just talking about this in our podcast this morning, is that so often Republicans say all these great things and everybody's so mad about how the economy is going or whatever. And so Republicans will say the things that they know people are feeling, but they don't offer the actual solutions. And so it's got to be a combination of both so that people know, okay, well, we're not just commiserating here. If I give you my vote, you're actually going to act. And that's something that Republicans have not been great at doing. They're very good at the bark, not so great at the bite. Right. Well, Amy, Joe, and Miriam, thank you so much for joining us on Federalist Radio Hour. Uh, Just one more time, where can folks find the podcast? Chicksontheright.com. Right. There you go. Right. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you to both of you. Thank, thank you. you. This so was much. great. Super fun. Thanks. Absolutely. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. <laughs>